I also think there's the sort of justice and equality angle. People who own their own homes can make the types of changes to them that will keep their energy bills low and or keep their homes healthy and for their families. And it just feels a bit unfair as a renter that I'm not entitled to the same, you know, rights to be healthy. Morning routine is kind of waking up, really trying to psych myself up to get out of bed um, because I know the cold is going to hit and it's going to be really unpleasant. And then shuffling the heater with me, with my feet, over to under my um, desk in the living room where I work from home. This is Riley Brook. Riley rents an apartment in a renovated, subdivided townhouse in Sydney. They live in an add-on section at the back of a townhouse. The added-on section is quite flimsy, not I, I'd, not particularly insulated, and there isn't ceiling, and I don't mean roof ceiling, but it's not sealed between the brick wall of the original structure and the added section. So if I go and stand um, between my bedroom and the little storage area, I can actually see to the outside, the light comes in through the crack between that wall there. And now to make matters worse, the door between my bedroom and that little storage room, bathroom added section doesn't have a door handle and therefore can't close. And there's a gap of, I'm gonna say two or three centimeters underneath that door. So no matter what I try and do to warm up my bedroom, the cold just comes right in straight through that wide open gap right there. I really struggle to keep, um, keep the warmth in. Like Riley, many Australians are living in energy inefficient homes. In this episode, we discuss energy poverty. Is everyone being included in a future transition to clean and renewable energy? You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Marlene Even. So what I'm going to talk about kind of all sounds a little bit trivial, but added up, it's like... It- it's just not fair. Like, it's not fair that that I am in this situation and I can't do anything about it. And it's reflective of, you know, a much broader problem with, you know, thousands and thousands of renters. So when it's, this is my first winter in this apartment and it started to get cold and I got a, you know, a Finn oil heater. Um, and because, as I said, I hate wearing lots of pairs of socks, that goes right next to my bed by my feet. And that's kind of the little, little area of warmth in the room. Um, I've also had to buy extra blankets and, you know, sleep in jumpers and, and, you know, leggings and sweatpants and stuff like that. Thankfully, it's getting a little warmer now. But Willow, my beautiful angel cat Willow, um, she's also cold. And so she develops this habit early on in winter of forcing herself in the little gap between my feet and the heater. And then she looks at me And I, like, my feet are cold, but I'm not going to move my cat into the cold. Like, I can't do that. I'm lucky that, you know, while it's really unpleasant and my electricity bill did go up more than double when winter first hit, you know, that's unpleasant, but I can cop it because I'd, I'd rather that than just be cold. But so many families don't have that option. They, you know, it's pay their electricity bill or pay their rent. And then what do you do if you can't pay your rent or pay your electricity bill? or buy your children's school supplies or put food on the table. This broader issue is around energy poverty. I'm Caroline Valente. I'm doing a PhD at UTS, so University of Technology, Sydney. And my doctoral research looks at energy poverty among older low-income Australians. I have interviewed over 20 age pensioners to get this full picture of their lived experience of energy poverty and also to understand its main causes, impacts, and potential ways to resolve it. What is energy poverty? 
Energy poverty refers to the situation in which your energy bills represent a lot of your income, so it might be impacting in other aspects of your life, for example, your ability to buy enough food or required medical prescriptions, or even to engage in leisure activities. Or you might be unable to pay your energy bills because you cannot afford them. Or in order to keep the energy bills manageable, you reduce your energy consumption to the extreme, potentially affecting your quality of life, your health and your well-being. Caroline says discussing energy poverty is especially relevant now with the COVID-19 lockdown. People are spending a lot more time at home and consuming more energy, of course. And at the same time, they may be jobless because of the current restrictions in place. So it is very likely that many more Australian households have been pushed into energy poverty recently. In Caroline's research, she analysed the energy bills of age pensioners before and during the COVID-19 lockdown. She found that the lockdown caused their energy consumption and bills to swell 15 to 50% higher than in 2019. But exactly how common is energy poverty? Previous studies indicate that around a quarter of Australian households suffer from energy poverty to varying degrees. And in regards to demographics, some studies in Australia are unanimous in indicating that low-income families, people reliant on government benefits for their income, people with some sort of impairment or disability, older households, which are the focus of my research, single parents and low-income private renters are particularly vulnerable to energy poverty. Many people within this demographic are also vulnerable to extreme weather conditions. It is uh, almost like this disadvantage cycle in which people are uh, simultaneously vulnerable to energy poverty and vulnerable to the heat or the temperature extreme. So it's like super dangerous, yeah. While Australian winters are not as cold as some other countries, the World Health Organization found that countries with milder climates actually have a higher winter mortality than those with severe winter conditions. This is in part because countries with milder winters tend to have less thermal efficient houses that are harder to heat. In winter, there is the phenomenon of excess winter deaths related to the exposure to cold temperatures at home. And more recently, we've been seeing the same during heat waves in summer, as we just heard about the hundreds of people who died of extreme heat in Canada and the west coast of the US a couple of weeks ago. One village in Canada's British Columbia saw temperatures hit nearly 47 degrees Celsius. Further south in Portland, Oregon, the council urged the vulnerable and elderly to head to cooling shelters, where they're being given water and somewhere cold to rest. In Texas, many are buying generators, fearing the power grid that failed in the record cold may resort to blackouts in this historic heat. Penrith was today the hottest place on the planet. The temperature soaring to 48.9, that's a new record for Penrith and the entire Sydney Basin. So how will climate change and the increasing frequency of extreme weather events impact energy poverty? There are two main ways in which climate change will accentuate energy poverty. 
The first one will be the need for increased artificial cooling and heating during extreme temperature events. So many of my older interviewees, for example, have not even considered owning an air conditioner until very recently, after our 2020 black summer with the bushfires and the higher temperatures. The second factor is um, when those extreme weather events, such as floods and bushfires, affect the energy transmission and distribution networks, we might have to deal with power interruptions and blackouts. And then high electricity tariffs might be put in place because there is less energy available for customers in the energy grid. So this increases energy costs despite the consumption, which can aggravate energy poverty for those who are very sensitive to changes in energy prices. One suggestion put forward by experts to reduce the effect of extreme heat is to increase the amount of trees in our cities. Trees can make a drastic difference in temperature. Let's take the example of two streets in a suburb in Sydney's west that are only one kilometre apart. Researchers at the Western Sydney University found that the difference between Galloway and Daking Street in North Parramatta can be as high as 8 degrees Celsius. The difference between these two streets, well, Galloway has more trees. The distribution of tree canopy cover is a global issue. The Guardian US, a news organization in the United States, is investigating the inequity of green spaces within a wider project called America's Dirty Divide. America's Dirty Divide is a year-long project which examines the country's vast environmental inequalities and how climate change is making things worse. My name is Alia Utiuova, and I'm a visual reporter covering environmental justice for The Guardian US. Alia joins us from New York. She says it's a nice windy day around 27 degrees Celsius. In the America's Dirty Divide series, Alia and fellow journalists report a disparity between which areas of Houston, a city in Texas, has more trees. In the article, How America's Treeless Streets Are Fueling Inequality, you stated that Houston is a tale of two cities. So what is the difference between these two cities? Certainly. Houston is the fourth largest city in the United States. Its booming population growth now amounts to over 2 million people, and it's one of the most diverse cities in the United States. Uh, Houston is a city surrounded by and consisting of highways. This web of concrete disproportionately affects lower income and majority non-white working class neighborhoods. Temperatures around downtown are severely, several degrees higher due to many factors, among which is the radiating heat blasting off of concrete and the lack of trees and vegetation that can alleviate this heat and provide shade. And Shade is a vital resource, especially in a city like Houston, which is a, uh, its climate is humid, subtropical, and last year the hottest daily temperature peaked at 100 Fahrenheit, or 38 degrees Celsius. This phenomenon is known as the urban heat island effect. 
Urban areas are usually hotter than the surrounding areas because they have less green cover, such as trees, and more hard surfaces, such as concrete, absorbing, storing, and radiating heat. The Guardian US highlights the unequal distribution of trees stems from a long history of racist housing practices, including a practice known as redlining. So in the 1930s in the United States, banks classified the neighborhoods where black people lived as undesirable, outlining them uh, in red on maps. And it made it harder for families to receive loans, but not just house loans. These lending practices stretched into student loans, business loans, car loans, and personal loans. People, black people were denied these services due to their um, race or ethnicity. Although outlawed in 1968, the impact of redlining is still felt today in policy and access to healthcare, transportation, as well as where trees get to be planted, where parks are built. And research illustrates how the outlawed redlining practice is still impacting which parts of Houston are under shade. A 2020 study by the Portland State University and the Science Museum of Virginia found that nationally, previously redlined neighborhoods are approximately 5 degrees Fahrenheit or 2.6 Celsius warmer today than non-redlined areas. On average, previously redlined areas also have about half the tree canopy than non-redlined areas. In the Guardian article co-authored by Aaliyah, they state, trees and the shade they provide are actually markers of race and class. Earlier on, we heard from Riley Brook, renting an apartment in Sydney. Riley's strong interest in social and economic justice brought them to their current job. I'm Policy and Campaigns Officer at the Tenants' Union of New South Wales. Almost four in five Australians who rent are concerned about the cost of their electricity bill. That's according to a 2018 report by Choice National Shelter and the National Association of Tenants' Organisations. Yeah, the, the biggest thing that we hear is the cost. I mean, obviously, if your home is not energy efficient, the amount of money that you're going to be spending on energy to keep your home, um, we're not even just talking comfortable, we're talking at a level that's healthy, that's healthy and safe for your family to, to live in. One of the barriers renters face to living in energy efficient homes is due to an issue called split incentives. PhD researcher Caroline Valente explains how this issue can impact renters. The first barrier is usually the fact that renters have little or no agency over the energy efficiency of the homes they rent, particularly for low-income households who can only afford to rent homes in the lower range of the market. Those dwellings are usually of poor energy efficiency. Then there is what we call the split incentive, when those responsible for making the investment decisions towards the energy efficient upgrades and the renewable energy, and by that I mean the landlord or the building owner, are not the same ones paying the energy bills and possibly benefiting from those upgrades, which would be the tenants. 
So in these circumstances, the landlord may not be so inclined to make the necessary upgrades to the dwelling, or even the renters may fear that their rent will go up because of those upgrades. And this split incentive issue leaves Riley feeling, I don't know if, I, if helplessness is the right word, but there's nothing I can really do to make my own, the home I live in, my rental home, more healthy and safe for me as a renter. I don't know how long I'm going to be living here. I don't know when I might be evicted, when I might have to move. So obviously doing things that would make my home more energy efficient, doing you know renovations that might make it more energy efficient is money out of my pocket to improve a property that I don't know how long I'll get to stay in and that someone else owns. For renters, retrofitting their home to be energy efficient means negotiating with landlords. Riley says the concern is that in New South Wales, there is still no grounds for eviction in our tenancy law. Which means renters can be evicted by their landlord for no reason at all. And that brings with it a whole host of problems. You know, we hear from renters all the time. I'm sure you've heard, you know, your friends, family, if not yourself, worried about asking for repairs um, or hassling for repairs, which are absolutely you're allowed to ask for by law and landlords are required to provide to you. But even things where it's very clear black and white in the law that you can ask for them and that you're entitled to them, People are worried about making those requests because the landlord could simply turn around and evict you. Um, and so I think while no grounds evictions remain uh, in place in New South Wales, remain legal in New South Wales, and renters feel uncomfortable requesting things, even that they are very clearly in black and white in the law entitled to, requesting things where it's kind of more of a grey area or there's more of an argument to prosecute, it's really difficult. A national campaign called Healthy Homes is campaigning on this issue. Over 70 organisations, including the Tenants' Union of New South Wales, have backed the campaign. Really what we're campaigning for is for an Australia where every renter has a home that can keep them safe and healthy, um, regardless of you know a cold winter or a hot summer. And so what that means is rental homes in every state and territory having minimum energy efficiency standards. So what does minimum energy efficiency standards mean? So just like the Energy Star rating of our domestic appliances, we also have an Energy Star rating for our homes. It goes from 0 to 10 stars, and currently the minimum requirement for new homes and major renovations in Australia is 6 stars, which is good, but not outstanding. So interesting you ask about how does it compare to requirements overseas, because what we see is that Australia is falling behind. While many of the developed countries are proposing building regulations towards net zero or carbon neutral homes, our minimal energy efficiency requirements have not changed in almost 10 years. So there is a lot to catch up in the building sector if we actually plan to achieve net zero by 2050. Changes to this Energy Star rating are expected next year. The Green Building Council of Australia announced a proposal to increase the energy efficient benchmark to an equivalent of seven or seven and a half stars. They will be working with the Australian government to bring this new standard into the regulatory framework to make houses energy and water efficient and climate change ready. The Healthy Homes campaign proposes that a minimum energy efficiency requirement is extended to rental homes. We'd like to see the New South Wales government introduce performance-based energy efficiency standards. And that kind of looks like, you know, you have a star rating on your appliances like your fridge. A similar thing for rental properties. 
um, it has to, you know, a star rating on rental properties, and if they don't meet a certain number of stars, um, those properties are not allowed to be rented out. Caroline acknowledges that this is a broader issue of our entire housing stock. We have very little knowledge about the energy efficiency of our entire housing stock, rented or not. So some studies suggest that most of our residential uh, existing stock is between one and two stars out of 10, but there is no mandatory disclosure of those star ratings as of yet. So we don't know how poor they actually perform. In a recent announcement, all homes can now be voluntarily assessed for energy efficiency in Australia. Previously, Energy Star ratings were provided to primarily assess new homes. So where to from here? To make a house energy efficient, Caroline suggests retrofitting homes. This can be done in a number of ways. We can retrofit homes for energy efficiency in three main ways. Improving the insolution of the envelope to increase its thermal performance, improving the energy efficiency of the water heating systems and the heating or cooling appliances, and lastly, installing renewable energy systems like solar PV or solar hot water systems. But how accessible are renewable energy systems to people experiencing energy poverty? Unfortunately, vulnerable households live from paycheck to paycheck. They cannot afford to replace their inefficient domestic appliances nor to acquire a renewable energy system that may demand a big initial investment. And we know this for a fact. Solar energy uptake is much higher among wealthy households who can profit from the local energy generation. So we need more government subsidies to ensure energy poor households have access to those renewable energy systems and can benefit from the lower energy consumption that might actually alleviate their energy poverty situation. Those who are more vulnerable to energy hardship are the ones we should be looking at closely in this current energy transition. We need to make sure that this transition is fair and just. Otherwise, the ones benefiting from it will be the ones least in need. But some communities are taking the issue into their own hands. To ensure they're not just part of the transition to clean energy, but leading it. So Voices for Power started um, four years ago, and it's a coalition of community organizations, faith leaders, unions, community members. My name is Brian Tran. I'm a community organizer at Sydney Alliance, part of the Vietnamese and Chinese communities. The Voices for Power group are a not-for-profit energy program by the Sydney Alliance. The leaders um, all got together and started it as they felt like migrant communities and people that were sort of on the margins of the decision-making process were actually the most affected by climate, urban heat and all these issues. And um, yeah, we really wanted to come together and created a community-led project um, in order to um, yeah, get the decision-makers to hear our voices. Australians have a high uptake of solar panels but it's estimated that at least 35% of Australians are locked out from installing solar panels due to barriers such as the upfront cost, living in an apartment, or because they are renting. The Sydney Alliance surveyed 1,000 Western Sydney residents. 73% believe the main barrier to installing solar PV in their area is the cost of installation. 
The Voices for Power group has a 10-point roadmap to clean and affordable energy. This includes creating a community-owned solar garden. Brian explains how the Blacktown City Council solar garden trial works. So Blacktown Council identify a plot of land that's available for use, and then they go ahead and set up it's, um, a, a farm or a, or a large grid of solar panels. And each grid or certain amount of grids can be subleased to um, people in apartments, people in social housing, people that might be blocked out. And I guess the whole thinking behind it is it opens doors to everyone or more people to access solar, but also it reduces the initial setup costs. So instead of running a thousand individual systems in the local community, you're sort of setting up one and yeah, and then that feeds into the local community. And the great thing about solar gardens is it actually takes a lot of pressure off of the grid. So it's sort of a, a community led grid pretty much. The group is also working on a program to train community leaders to empower culturally and linguistically diverse communities to navigate the energy system. And the idea is that we want to train these cultural leaders to be more in the know about how the energy system works, what they can do, and sort of their rights in in bargaining and negotiating. And um, these community leaders will then go back to their communities and train other people in the communities. One key thing Caroline hopes for is that we start having these conversations to destigmatize energy poverty. One of the things I came across in my research is that many older households endure energy poverty in silence. So they feel ashamed, they feel embarrassed of their situation, and they feel they have failed themselves. And what happens is that they avoid seeking help from friends or family. So I'd suggest for everyone who's listening to this podcast to start having this energy conversation with parents, friends, neighbors, everyone, because we need to destigmatize energy poverty. If you are in energy poverty, it's not your fault. And there are some ways to get help. You can get assistance for negotiating a better energy deal with lower rates. You can get rebates from the government towards energy bills. And you can also get financial support for the replacement of some of those domestic appliances like TV and fridge. So there are ways of getting out of it. And the more we talk about it, more people will know how to get help. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology, Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for your company.